Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Warning. If you like your UFO literature to confirm what you already know, this is not the book for you. From White Crow Books comes a brand new collection of essays. 14 authors. One goal to shatter the UFO topic and pick up the pieces in a whole new light. Compiled and edited by Robbie Graham with a foreword by Professor Diana Walsh-Pasolka, UFOs Reframing the Debate is a cold, hard slap in the face for ufology delivered with love. UFOs Reframing the Debate. Available now in paperback and ebook on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble, the Book Depository, and the iBookstore. For a complete list of contributors and to learn more, visit RobbieGraham.uk. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. On the premiere episode of Somewhere in the Skies... I sat down to speak to UFO researcher and historian Richard Dolan. We talked all about media bias when covering the UFO topic. It was a fascinating journey through the way news media has shaped and manipulated our perception of a mystery that has plagued us for almost a century. If you haven't heard that interview, I highly suggest going back and giving it a listen. It was a hell of a way to kick off the podcast, trust me. And you'll also get to see the primitive nature of my first attempts of audio editing. It was not pretty. Anyways, the idea that media can play such a large role in our perception of UFOs isn't a new one, but it's certainly a part of the entire UFO question we must always be aware of. And today, we're going to tackle the way Hollywood has shaped the narrative of UFOs, aliens, and how we deal with the more fantastical angles versus the hardlined reality and truth behind these topics. How deep does the connection between the U.S. intelligence agencies truly go when UFO and alien-themed media is created? Where does the truth end and the lies masked in fictional storytelling truly begin? This is a fascinating journey through these very questions, and a guest you won't soon forget. But first, I'm always curious what UFO or alien-themed movies really left an impression on people. So, I took a little listener poll, and these were some of the results. Chris says, The movie Hangar 18. It's the closest to the truth in terms of the government's involvement with this phenomenon. Plus, it was filmed in Big Springs, Texas, the site of many UFO rumors and secret underground bases. Wayne and Matthew both said they enjoyed the found footage film, Area 51. I've yet to see this one myself, guys, but I really wanted to see how they handle the lore of this iconic secret base, so I'll definitely be checking that one out. Now, Sammy, Vance, Stephen, and Chris went with Fire in the Sky, the terrifying recounting 
of Travis Walton's alien abduction experience. Staying on the topic of abductions, The Fourth Kind and Dark Skies both racked up a ton of votes for their faithfulness to the high strangeness that often accompanies an abduction experience. John really enjoyed 1992's docudrama, Good Brothers, saying that he was so glad someone took the time to talk to and film the remaining contactees before they passed on. The movie is weird, sweet, and there's some amazing vintage footage from Giant Rock and its attendees. A ton of female listeners all agreed on a Carl Sagan classic. Becky, Lynn, Cheryl, and Laura went with Contact. Becky adds that the faith versus science theme shows that anything is possible. It fills her with wonder and hope for future generations. I would have to agree on that, guys. Michael enjoyed the film Under the Skin. He had this to say. To my knowledge, it was the only alien movie ever made that truly felt alien, had incomprehensible alien imagery and logic, and fully situated itself in the alien point of view. It felt like a documentary film made by an alien. That is a perfect way to describe the tone of this one, Michael. Another listener by the name of Michael went with the UFO incident. He says, It is the most accurate of all the UFO cases made into a movie. The Betty and Barney Hill abduction case is my favorite because it has evidence of origin for one of the alien races who visit our planet. I thought James Earl Jones' acting was right on the mark when it came to portraying Barney Hill's fear and anxiety. John and Marlena went with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both agreeing that the form of invasion in this movie was very unique and quite plausible. A little scary, if you ask me. The big winners with the most votes were Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and E.T. There were way too many names here, so it's clear that these three films had a huge impact on people. And we'll tackle even more films with this week's guest. Robbie Graham has been interviewed about UFOs and the politics of Hollywood for BBC Radio, Coast to Coast AM, and Vanity Fair. His articles have appeared in a variety of publications, including The Guardian, New Statesman, Film Facts, 14 Times, and the peer-reviewed journal of North American Studies. He holds an MA with distinction in cinema studies from the University of Bristol. As a professional educator, Robbie has designed and delivered film and media courses at multiple learning levels at Stafford College and the University of Bristol. He is the editor of SilverScreenSaucers.com and the recently released anthology, UFOs, Reframing the Debate. Today, we talk all about his book, Silver Screen Saucers, separating fact from fantasy in Hollywood's UFO movies. So grab your popcorn, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's interview with Robbie Graham. I think, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced it, but certainly being interested in UFOs as a teenager is, uh, is, is um, <laughs> has its... <laughs> has its challenges it so, does it wasn't so, exactly the best icebreaker for sure socially so, <laughs> yeah so, you have, so have, you have to keep it secret really until you're like 25 and you don't know any of the people you used to know <laughs> <laughs> it's the coming out of the closet for us uh, as it were <laughs> uh, anyway i'll i'll, I'll uh, i won't take any more of your interview time Ryan. not at all man i love talking about this stuff but yeah let's just dive into it if you don't mind um mm-hmm. i've been following your work for a while now across the internet 
highways, as it were. Um, I'd seen essays you'd written. I'd seen um, websites you'd contributed to. And I was just I was excited and happy to finally see someone looking at this angle that you took with the UFO. Not so much phenomenon, but uh, UFOs in general. And that was connecting them to film, to Mm -hmm. TV, to Hollywood in general. This is something I am very passionate about. I'm, I'm first and foremost a playwright and screenwriter, a film buff. And to find a mixture between UFOs and that is a dream come true for me. And that's where I came across your work. Um, and that sort of culminated into a book you have out called Silver Screen Saucers, Sorting Fact from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies. So I kind of wanted to talk to you today about that. So I have with me today, guys, Robbie Graham, the author of said book. How you doing, Robbie? I'm good, thanks, Ryan. It's, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Fantastic. So I guess we can sort of start with your origin story, as it were. Um, <laughs> I always love taking the comic book angle. Um, when did your <laughs> your interest in, let's say, flying saucers, when did it actually begin? I started to be interested in flying saucers, UFOs, aliens, um, <laughs> goblins, uh, you know, like monsters, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, you know, anything that was remotely weird or otherworldly um, took my interest. And, uh, and I started to read books on this kind of stuff, probably around the age of eight or nine. Um, and I was just naturally drawn to it, not from personal experience, but, uh, but it was just something that was, that was kind of innately interesting to me um there was a a childhood friend of mine who had a a ufo close encounter when i was um seven years old and his reporting of that encounter in the play in the uh, playground at school really stuck in my memory and uh, and it's it's, you know it's with me till this to this day and and i suppose that really did have a, a psychic impact on me and um i could never really let go of the subject and then my interest in ufos intensified in to my teenage years and then by that point I'd started to buy and read most of the major literature on the subject and it really had become an obsession for me I'm an uh, an obsessional personality and um, <laughs> and then in my 20s I started to to really focus on film uh, film studies media and academic level and that became my my passion um, but the interest in UFOs never went away and then uh, in my mid-20s I finally decided to combine the two interests and start writing about ufo movies and ufo themed entertainment from a cultural and political perspective and that's eventually led to the publication of my book do you remember the first film you ever saw that included ufos or aliens i know this is probably drawing back a long time but that's a good question um well, E.T., the extraterrestrial, was 1980. I was born in 1981, and E.T. Was, was released in 1982, but I'm pretty sure that E.T. was not the first mm-hmm. alien film I saw. In fact, I wasn't even a fan of E.T. as a kid. <laughs> I don't think it's really, a, I don't think it's really a, a children's film. It's a strange thing to say, but it's, it's a film about children, I would say, for adults or for families. Um, it doesn't, it's not kind of like a Goonies film that really appeals to... There's not much, not much happens in ET. There's not a lot of adventure. Right. You know, it's it's a very quiet film. It's a very intimate film. It's a, a very grown up film in many ways, um, dealing with adult themes. And that wasn't the first alien film I th- I, I saw. Um, the, one of the earliest I can remember seeing, and certainly one of my favourite as a as a child, was Joe Dante's 1985 uh, sci-fi adventure called Explorers, starring River Phoenix and um, 
uh, Ethan Hawke uh, as young boys, and uh, they they basically get a an alien telepathic message, and uh, they build a uh, an alien spe- they build they build a spaceship out of junkyard material um, based on an alien <laughs> schematic, and then they go go out into space and visit their their alien friends. That was incredible. Next time, next time we'll bring more air. Next we'll time, higher, and we'll explore. Listen, Ben, I'm not going to get in that thing again until we find out exactly where those programs are coming from. And we need to run tests. Yes, we have to run hundreds upon hundreds of serious tests. You know, it could take years. What are you talking about? That was the most important thing that ever happened. Uh, Couldn't you feel it? That feeling way inside? We were flying. Come on, Ben, make some sense. We almost didn't come back. But we did come back. Here we are. And it was just the ultimate alien fantasy for me, and and it inspired me to try and build my own my own spaceship, which actually was a kind of like a time machine. Oh wow! <laughs> you don't want to know this stuff—a time <laughs> machine in a junkyard and stuff—and that was really, you know, I was I was really fascinated by that stuff. But I, at that point, at that age, I never really thought of myself as being an alien kind of nut. The alien nut phase started later. Um, but I also remember, you know, things like Cocoon, um, which, again, is kind of a grown-up, kind of boring film as a kid. I think you appreciate that a little bit more as you get older, but it's still kind of boring. Um, Batteries Not Included, I was a fan of. Steven Spielberg's production of Batteries Not Included from 1987. Um, the, you know, there were a lot of these friendly alien films throughout the 1980s, and that was the fad in Hollywood at the, at the time. And those are the films I grew up on. One of the really powerful alien films I, I, I saw at a reasonably young age I was far too young really was James Cameron's Aliens um, and it terrified me uh, and it's you know but I, I, I watched it every single time it was on TV mm-hmm. and and it, it, it's just 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 fantastic but yeah so, so it wasn't until as I say it wasn't until my mid-twenties that I really started to think right I'm gonna look into this exhaustively and I'm going to build a catalogue of alien films of, of ufo movies specifically um and, and i would define what i refer to as a ufo movie as any film that taps directly into any aspect of ufo mythology uh, and incorporates elements of ufo literature ufo discourse things that are based on factual events or real world occurrences um, relating to ufos uh, and, and uh, you know there are uh, there's, a, there's a huge catalog of films out there that tap into this existing subculture of, of ufos and exploit the mythology exploit the the cases even a lot of these films draw from real life cases and then they kind of fictionalize them um, and present them as, as sci-fi narratives and then it kind of confuses people but but uh that that was that was very very interesting and i kind of thought well UFO movies, although they're very entertaining, and and Hollywood is that is um you know Hollywood is is in many ways kind of cultural fluff. At the same time, it seemed to me that that Hollywood movies were acting as our main frame of reference for alien contact, for ideas surrounding alien contact, alien visitation, and UFOs, um, because we don't really get answers from authorities on these issues we we get silence or we get disinformation we we don't get information from mainstream news media um we get sensationalized information from 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 mainstream news media um and and so what you have is grassroots reports filtering through at a folk level and and forming a subculture and then entertainment media taps into this exploits it and popularizes it and that process really fascinated me and I wanted to deconstruct it. Yeah, I mean, I know you mentioned a 
rather famous quote about, you know, Hollywood or movies fill the gaps in between, you know, our knowledge. Um, mm. Something of that sort. I know I'm bastardizing it. <laughs> no, it's okay. Ken Russell, the, the, the British, uh, British filmmaker, um, uh, he, he once said that Hollywood fills the gaps in our knowledge of the world. And that was a – I tell you, I, I read that quote. He wrote it in an article that he wrote for the Guardian newspaper in 2008. And I was 27 at the time, and that was when I was starting to form the idea of my book. Um, I'd already started to write about UFOs in Hollywood by that point, but I hadn't seriously considered writing a book. And then at that, I, I read this article, and I thought, you know, I really, I really need to to get all this down on paper. And that quote just really—it's—it's it's never left me. And I cut, I cut the quote out of the newspaper and kept it in a file and I've still got it and it, Hollywood fills the gaps in our knowledge of the world and I thought wow that is especially true oh, when yeah. it comes to UFOs it's true of everything but it's especially true of UFOs uh, so you know the, the, the example I use is that um, you know I challenge people to think of the sinking of the Titanic without thinking almost immediately of James Cameron's 1997 movie <laughs> right you can't separate that movie from the real world event because that movie is pretty much all we know of the real world event unless you've gone to historical archives you know and, and have done some serious historical research that movie replaces the event itself in 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 our popular consciousness right. uh, that's the power of cinema and i thought wow and so with that, if it can do that for, for a real historical event that everyone accepts as being truthful and factual anyway as part of our recent historical memory what can this cinematic process do for a, a subject which is sidelined, ignored, um, and rejected by consensus reality and by official culture, what has been the role that, that, that this medium has played in our understanding or our misunderstanding of UFOs? And so in that sense, I thought, wow, cinema is not peripheral to the UFO phenomenon. It's actually central to our understanding of it. Despite the sort of parasitic nature of Hollywood in terms of this, this topic, you also mention entertainment being used as stratagem. Uh, I mean, this is a. This could be a book in itself, really, just relating to UFOs. But I, I kind of hone it down into into a quite a lengthy chapter in the book where I look at the idea of this Hollywood UFO conspiracy. A lot of people in in the UFO field have been very interested for a long time in in Hollywood's relationship with with three letter agencies. But very few people have actually looked into this very seriously and tried to come to solid conclusions. I did some research a few years ago which lasted a few years, uh, with um, my friend and colleague Matthew Wolford, who's uh, one of the world's leading experts on Hollywood propaganda, and he, he wrote a book called Real Power, R-E-E-L Power, in, um, in 2010, which was, a, which was looking at Hollywood's role as a propaganda machine, essentially, in, in, the, in the modern era. And Matthew and I spent quite a long time looking into, well, you know, the history of, of, of Hollywood propaganda, the nature of the, the relationship past and present between various agencies and, and the entertainment industry. And then we also took some time to look at how this relationship has impacted UFO-themed entertainment products from the 1950s through to present day. And we wrote a, a piece on that for a a, a university journal. And that piece was eventually extended by myself and adapted for my book and so I built on that and tried to, to bring it as, as further up to date as possible the, the, there's a wealth of material to, to discuss basically the, the Department of Defense the Pentagon in America has, uh, has had a, a working relationship with Hollywood for many decades but the relationship was 
um, formalized really in the mid 1980s following the release of Top Gun, which served as a recruitment campaign for the US Navy uh, and boosted recruitment 500%. To reach for something bigger, to master a more challenging world, to feel the confidence and pride of knowing who you are, what you can do. Show the world your U.S. Navy. Live the adventure. Call 1-800-327-NAVY. Basically, I mean, it can work both ways. Sometimes sometimes the military will approach filmmakers, uh, but usually it's the other way around. Uh, a filmmaker will approach the military uh, seeking their cooperation on a production in order to cut costs on that production. So if you're making a war movie, an action movie that requires tanks, guns, jets, you know, right. uh, troops, then especially before the age of CGI, the only way to create that really is through expensive props or to actually get the real stuff on screen with the help of the military. Mm-hmm. And the military is only only too willing to lend its toys to, to Hollywood, but it has to be um, mutually beneficial. So the military, the military will say, look, we'll give you our stuff if you sign a contract with us, which enables us to oversee your production. And we can alter, as we see fit, anything in your script, uh, that we deem to be objectionable, uh, anything that paints the military in a negative light, or anything that uh, we don't agree with in terms of depictions of you know national security policy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they can change this and do in in Hollywood scripts. And so what you have is is a is a sort of a legal open form of propaganda, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's all a okay and above board, but it's not really publicized too much you know Uh, and that relationship has been very healthy and ongoing for 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 a long time in recent years what you've had is filmmakers becoming increasingly willing excuse me the department of defense becoming increasingly willing to work with ufo themed productions until the late 1990s that was not the case there had been a policy dating back to the 1950s where the u.s government and military were very reluctant you know to 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 cooperate on any ufo themed productions in hollywood uh, and that was as a result of recommendations made by the robertson panel in 1953 mm-hmm. who suggested that ufos be debunked and demystified through media channels uh, and that did have an effect uh, so so generally right through to to the late 1990s whenever a filmmaker approached a branch of the government or military for cooperation on a UFO theme production, the response was, no, we will not help you because UFOs don't exist and it contravenes our policy. So so that was the policy. But then in the mid-1990s, on the first Independence Day, when the filmmakers Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin approached the Department of Defense for their cooperation for obvious reasons, the Department of Defense said, look, we, we have all sorts of problems with your script, um, but the, the the sticking points for us are that you include Area 51 as being central to the plot, and you also make reference to the Roswell incident. Uh, and you suggest that the president is uh, has been kept in the dark. My God. Why the hell wasn't I told about this place? Two words, Mr. President. Plausible deniability. I don't understand. Where does all this come from? How do you get funding for something like this? You don't actually think they spend twenty thousand dollars on a hammer, thirty thousand dollars on a toilet seat, do you? That's obviously not the case. So you know, these are, <laughs> this is this is what they said specifically in their in their script notes to the filmmakers, and to their credit, the filmmakers 
went their own way and they said, look, we can't take those things out of the script because they're central to it and we're going we're gonna to do it with CGI and that's what they did. And then as a result of that, I am convinced, as a direct result of that, the, the Department of Defense recognized very quickly when they saw that that film became the most successful of 1996 and one of the most successful of the decade, grossing over $800 million, they realized, oh my God, we've, made, we've, we've missed out on a huge opportunity here because had we given them our support, our support we would have had access to the script. Yeah. And had we access to the script, we could have shaped the narrative in a way that serves us. We could shape, we could, we could try and steer... Uh, particular beliefs within the UFO conspiracy community, we could, you know, we could better portray our, our own history with uh, with relation to UFOs. We could, you know, we we could massage it as we see fit. But because they denied their cooperation, they lost that opportunity. Now, they obviously realised this because the following year, the Stargate TV show, which uh, and, and Emmerich actually directed the first the Star Trek uh, the Stargate movie, but the but um, the he he uh, he wasn't directly involved in the TV show. But the TV show came out. Uh, the year after Stargate, excuse me, Independence Day. Mm-hmm. Stay with, stay with me here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what happened was when they approached the military for their support on Stargate TV show, the military said, "Okay, we'll give you uh, full cooperation." Mm-hmm. And they gave them access to Cheyenne Mountain, NORAD. They, uh, you know, they gave them their just total, total cooperation at every level for ten seasons, for ten years. Wow, and that show was hugely responsible for shaping belief in UFO in UFO conspiracy fields when it comes to the supposed relationship between UF between um, between the US government and and alien entities and things like that they they really tapped into existing beliefs and then they furthered them and 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 enriched them in 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 a couple of episodes actually across a couple of different seasons of that show you had high ranking military uh, air force officers appearing as themselves cameoing as themselves in those episodes appearing alongside aliens and stuff you know <laughs> and that's that's really remarkable cooperation and richard dean anderson the actor who who who's in it macgyver yep. um he um he was he was given a, a really you know a, a military award um for his you know for his services to well to propaganda i guess yeah <laughs> and it was invited to the pentagon he met with the joint chiefs of staff so this is an example of of the very cozy relationship between hollywood and and washington and um and it continues to this day in fact just uh, a couple of weeks ago there was a report put out outlining how a senate committee in the united states is wanting to look into the nature of the relationship between the CIA and Hollywood because they are convinced that it's actually too cosy and that um, uh, certain uh, illegalities may have transpired over the past few years uh, on films like um, Zero Dark Thirty, for example, made by Catherine Bigelow, who enjoys a very cosy relationship with the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CIA relationship, again, with, with Hollywood goes back to the early 1950s. We could talk about it for an hour, but suffice to say, it's very deep-rooted and uh, symbiotic. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you do wonder like how how deep does it go and how do you how do you stop that comfortableness uh between the two at this point? It almost seems like the floodgates are wide open. They are. I, I, they are. I mean, it's it's very interesting that it's finally got to the stage where there's a Senate committee investigating it. Exactly. Whether or not that will actually have any effect, I don't know because you know, the relationship between the entertainment industry and and Washington makes sense certainly from washington's perspective because they recognize that and have always recognized if you want to shape popular perceptions of any 
significant issue or of any issue at all, but especially of hot button national security issues, the best way to do that is is to manage, to monitor, to manage, and to influence the content of, of mass media, news media, hard factual media, but also entertainment media, and especially entertainment media, because because it's seen popularly as as um, as soft, as as something that's fluff, as something that's harmless, uh, and and not political, but actually. And, that, and that's why it's so effective as a, as a propaganda tool, because it has been exploited, it has been infiltrated. And this was very well documented in the 1970s by Carl Bernstein, um, the, the, the famous uh, journalist who, who revealed that as of, you know, up to the mid-1970s, the CIA had infiltrated you know, over 400 American uh, news outlets, newspapers, right. TV stations. And that began in the 1950s. Um, and everyone was on board. You know? and, and actually, the, the former CIA operative, uh, Robert Bayer, who uh, whose life inspired the George Clooney movie Syriana? Clooney plays Bob Bayer in the in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I interviewed Bob Bayer in two thousand and eight, uh, and asking him about the nature of the relationship between CIA and Hollywood, and and he said to me, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but it was along the lines of, "All these people in Hollywood, they go to Washington, they hang around with senators, they hang around with CIA directors, and everybody's on board." That's the exact quote, and that's from and that's from a, a you know that's from a guy who was a very serious you know, respected field officer in the CIA for many decades uh, and who actually works in Hollywood now and so who knows very well what he's talking about. So that's, you know, so so when we watch films now that seem to be just um, harmless entertainment, we need to look deeper because it, nothing is what it seems now. And, uh, and, that, and that's especially important when we're, when we're trying to understand the UFO phenomenon as well and, and, and the influences at play behind the scenes in the entertainment industry and, and uh, you know, how these films are shaped at a narrative level and if there are any messages and if there is an overarching message. Robbie, let's talk about that influence. I mean, films in specific. One of the first theories on a film being directly influenced uh, that I came across was um, a UFO event came in the form of 1951's The Thing from Another world uh, which draws striking resemblance to a very famous ufo incident in 47 there we are holy cat what a weird looking thing let me get a picture before you track up the whole place this gaga kind is going crazy something's of that surface crust it's frozen over again in a clear eyes the bottle shape apparently was caused by the aircraft first making contact with the earth out there at the neck of the bottle sliding toward us and forming that larger area as it came to rest with the engine or engines generating enough heat to melt that path through the crust, then sink beneath the surface. What could melt that much ice? Let's get out and see. Holy cat. Hey. It's almost... Yeah. Almost a perfect... It is. It's round. We finally got one. We found a flying saucer. Could you tell us a little about that film and just exactly what sort of connection may have started there? Well, this, this is the thing from Another World, directed by Howard Hawks, um, released in 1951. It's really the first, or one of the first uh, UFO movies, I, I guess, you had in the same year, The Day the Earth Stood Still. But The Thing from Another World was was an alien invasion movie, and it did seem to have, uh, in hindsight, certainly not at the time people would, rec- would would have recognized it, but in hindsight, parallels with, with the Roswell incident, um, which had occurred in 1947. And the movie thing, from another world it, it, it's it concerns for example a saucer crash in a remote lo- in a remote location uh, it features um, the military trying to cover it up a news uh, a newsman trying to expose the truth it, it concerns um, 
the discovery of a, of a dead alien, um, which then turns out to be alive. All of these details were later reported, you know, in relation to the Roswell incident. And so it's caused some people to speculate that perhaps someone in the film industry may have had inside knowledge of the Roswell incident and was, was, was tapping into that or perhaps trying to get a message across through the entertainment industry. It's, it's possible. There's no proof of that. The, the defense contractor and billionaire Howard Hughes, famously played by Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie. Uh, again, there's another example. I challenge you to think of Howard Hughes without thinking of Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> um, Good point. He he owned RKO at the time. He was he was the owner of the studio that that released the thing. And of course, Howard Howard Hughes had um, very deep rooted ties to the to to the government through the defense industry. So it's possible that he may have had some kind of knowledge or, uh, of a, of a UFO crash. You know, it's it's pure speculation, but it's the strongest um, link that there is. But certainly, whether or not there is any direct knowledge of, uh, of of Roswell on the part of the filmmakers what is clear is that there are parallels uh, mm-hmm. between between those you know between the movie and the and the event and we'll touch on Roswell again with another film later on but like you mentioned shortly after the thing from another world one of my personal favorite movies was released the day the earth stood still starring Michael Rennie Patricia Neal uh, where a UFO literally lands on the White House lawn ladies and gentlemen this is Drew Pearson We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon, the arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. That moment, that that iconic cinematic moment, is, is where pop culture now you know the, the the phrase why don't they land on the white house lawn that we have that movie to thank for that you know for that for that misconception mm-hmm. that's the power of cinema that you know in that instant in that iconic scene in that iconic movie we were presented with a with a scenario which has shaped our perceptions and our, our, our expectations of how the phenomenon should manifest all these years later why don't they land on the white house lawn well because it's not a movie right <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, not at all. That that proves the point that your quote-unquote speculation and the facts you've brought forth in this book are extremely powerful and prevalent. And there's actually little debate as to the power that the media has um, on pop culture. In terms of this movie, uh, the content sort of paralleled the 1952 Washington, D.C. UFO flap um, you mentioned in the book as well. And the director of the film, uh, Robert Weiss had he had some interesting connections during filming. Could you tell us a little about Weiss and perhaps some of the ties he may have had to either intelligence agencies or um, UFO investigations in general? Robert Weiss um, was a a UFO believer, but he wasn't always a UFO believer. He became a UFO believer through his experiences of making the day the Earth stood still in the early 1950s. Um, this was related by the filmmaker Paul Davids, who made the 1994 movie Roswell, starring Carl mm-hmm. McLaughlin and Martin Sheen. Now, Paul Davids, um, the producer and writer of that movie, was friends with Robert Wise in his later years. And over lunch one day, Robert Wise was telling Paul Davids about uh, the production of The Day the Earth Stood Still and said, you know, um, during production, we had a number of men from Washington, scientists and engineers from Washington, come onto the set and, you know, drip, 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 little bits of information um, about UFOs. 
And he found it, and it was through these conversations and interactions that he had with these people from Washington, he came to believe that actually this was something that was treated very seriously in the corridors of power, and therefore there must be something to it. Um, so, so that was that was how he came to, to to be a believer, really. But he was kind of agnostic at the time. But certainly, that film is is. I mean, it's it's, it's impact was huge. Uh, the, the remake was was probably unnecessary. I would say. <laughs> That's true. But at least Keanu Reeves got paid, so. <laughs> Who supposedly donates a lot of his profits to... It's uh, true, that's true. Shows, no, that's, so. no, that's, that's true, no, that's true, that's true. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it. Another film with some pretty close ties to the UFO lore came in the form of 1953's Invaders from Mars. Again, one of my favorites. And again, didn't care much for the remake. But this is a film in which an alien race are planning sort of a silent invasion as it were, on Earth, and their plan is being thwarted by a young boy and eventually the army. Gee whiz! Invaders from Mars. He saw them land from outer space. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. (laughs) Father turned against son. People changed into strange, weird animals. General of the Army becomes a saboteur. Trusted police turned into arsonists. Invaders from Mars, capturing humans at will for their own sinister purposes, turning them into diabolical instruments of destruction. This film mentions many actual UFO cases throughout, and could you tell us a bit about the UFO cases and why you believe these scenes had been purposefully inserted in a later cut of the film, but not originally the American version. Well, this is a case study that I have in my book. I, I don't really, I don't really come down one way or another on, on this. It's just something that I find interesting. I, I find it impossible to draw a conclusion on this, but it, it, it's just something I, I presented out of interest, really, because it, it is very curious. Um, so the film was released in 1953, Invaders from Mars, and its plot, first of all, as you say, does. Uh, I mean, it, it's very ufological, and it actually, it seemed to anticipate the modern abduction phenomenon by several decades in its fine details. You've got, you've got aliens with big eyes uh, landing and so- sort of silently infiltrating a town, but they they abduct people, basically, and they, they insert implants into the back of people's necks, as people report in, 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 uh, in modern abduction accounts. They, uh, there's mind control in there as well, again, which is frequently reported. And what you have in, in the film is, is, a, is one of the characters is a heroic astronomer. That was a common common character in the 1950s sci-fi movies and uh in it he this astronomer is speculating that that the aliens are martians they come from mars and this is their, their agenda but there's a sequence quite a lengthy sequence eight minutes long which is actually not in the theatrical release but which was inserted into later european releases so the fact that it was filmed at all raises questions it was filmed later it wasn't filmed at the time it was filmed after the fact and then inserted into these later releases. So someone had obviously made the decision to film this, to to go to the expense of you know getting the sets and props again, and getting the actors again, and everything, and writing writing the dialogue, and then filming it and inserting it. it. It's just really strange because it adds absolutely nothing at all to the film dramatically. In fact, it brings the film to a standstill for eight minutes. And what you've got is essentially a monologue by. It's almost like a public service announcement by this character of the astronomer in the movie, and. He's presenting factual UFO information to 
the little boy in the, in the movie. And he's saying, you know, the Air Force has been investigating this for, for a number of years with their Project Saucer, which is the popular name for Project Sign at the time, which was the Air Force's first UFO investigations project. The Project Saucer have been investigating this for years. They know what's going on. They know we're being visited by Martians. And they've actually, and, and here, he just happens to have in his, in his cabinet pulls it open and he's got all of these scale models of flying saucers that the, <laughs> that the air force knows to exist and has catalogued this is like you know this is this is such and such and this is this this is this model and this was seen over here and this was and then he and then he opens up a file that he's got of newspaper clippings with real ufo reports in them and real photographs of, of real ufos famous ufo encounters uh, encounters and and sightings such as the lubbock lights over texas so th- so what you've got that's one of the first instances of direct blurring of of factual information factual ufological information uh, and fantasy within it within a sci- science fiction film but again only certain people saw it because it was filmed after the fact and then inserted into into later releases so i i, I have no conclusions to draw on that other than the fact that it's really weird <laughs> it is it is very weird yeah. and, and and also, and, and the other thing is, of course, is that the film was 1953, and 1953 is the film that we can really trace, uh, is the year that we can trace back to where the CIA really, really started to to get its hooks into Hollywood. Um, that was the year. There was some uh, infiltration earlier in the 1950s and 1951, but 1953 is really where it started to kick off. And at that point, you had wide-scale infiltration of the entertainment industry by, by the CIA um, on a regular basis. So it, so there's, there's no concrete conclusions to be drawn. There's no smoking gun there, but it's just a very interesting case, I, I, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps it was, you know, little test run on partial hmm. disclosures. Who knows? Who, know, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and, and I know there are several documentaries that you speak about throughout the book as well, where some UFO footage or photos were inserted um, at certain points throughout that were said to come directly from the government or mm. from Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book. So that's very interesting as well. We could talk about those forever, but I know you cover them very well in the book. I wanted to bring up one of the most notorious conflicts between ufology and Hollywood came in the form of the work of Donald Kehoe, who we mm-hmm. all know was a very prominent UFO researcher and did a lot with his time before that. Could you sort of guide us through his connection with the film Earth vs. the Flying Saucers in relation to his, his previously published book? Uh, yeah, th- I mean, um, so this was a 1956 movie, and it was based on Kehoe's earlier book, I believe it was 1953 or 4, Kehoe's non-fiction book, um, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, which itself sounds like a pulpy movie, but it was actually, a, um, a, as I say, it was a serious book written by Kehoe looking at the, 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 the flying saucer phenomenon. And so that had been published by Kehoe. And then a couple of years later, some producers in Hollywood decided to approach Kehoe seeking the rights to this book because they told him that they were going to be making a serious documentary looking at, at the UFO phenomenon and they wanted to use his source material. And so he was very sceptical, Kehoe, and um, he initially denied them the rights, but eventually he, he agreed and, and handed the rights over to his book and um, paid for the rights. And uh, needless to say, the result was not a serious documentary, but was the schlocky B-movie Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which, uh, which really <laughs> bore very little resemblance to his source material. And the result, but but what happened was is that Kehoe's name appeared in the credits. You know, so he was directly associated with this outlandish science fiction movie, and therefore tarred uh, tarred as a result. You know, his reputation was was solid, and um, and he fought to have his name removed from the credits, but without success and so to this day you can see Kehoe's name in the credits of this B movie and you know it raises the question was this 
was this an intelligence uh, operation? Yeah. Sure, I don't think we can use it. I don't think it, the operation really um, applies. But 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 it does it does raise the question if if there was intelligence influence in here because um, Kehoe at the time, let's not forget, was the number one thorn in the side of the US government where it came to UFOs. He right. was he was fiercely advocating UFO disclosure. He didn't use those term he didn't use that term really, but he, he wanted an end to UFO secrets. He wanted the books to be opened on UFOs. And he said, you know, he was very vocal about the fact that there was a big cover up. Uh, and so and, and and Kehoe was was a serious individual. He had respect. And uh he, he so so this was the time so so again the question I suppose is did someone within the intelligence community seek to exploit it, exploit its relationship with Hollywood and uh, and and basically sucker Kehoe into being associated with uh, with something very very silly and thereby uh, ruin his reputation. Like you said, it is it does sort of. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound like a uh, a personality attack, as it were. Um, perhaps this person who was so prominent in the UFO field, uh, they wanted to sort of dumb him down, make him look bad. Uh, mm. I mean, he eventually did that himself for himself, really, as as time went on. And, yeah. And, but but uh, but in the, in the early in the fifties, you know, certainly he had a lot more credibility. Yes. One wonders why they would even ask his permission to create a movie that had almost absolutely yeah, I nothing mean, to do with yeah. his book. And exactly. put his name on it, you know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of things could be drawn from that. Uh, we'll probably never know. But, um, Robbie, I wanted to fast forward a little bit to um, 1993. Uh, one of the most famous abduction films of all time was Fire in the Sky. How does it think? What makes it move? Why does it breathe? Questions anyone would ask about a man if they'd never seen one before. So for five days, a man was borrowed. The story that Travis Walton and five other witnesses told was so unbelievable, so unimaginable, that it has become the most famous case of UFO abduction ever reported. Written by Tracy Torme, uh, based on the accounts of Travis Walton. This film scared the hell out of me when I was younger. I don't know about you. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, with good reason. It, it still has one of the most horrifying interpretations of alien abduction ever, I'd say, ever conveyed on film. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd say so. Yeah, but for Torme, it was, it was a bumpy road getting the film made, and the final product wasn't exactly what he or Travis Walton had hoped for in terms of authenticity. Uh, you tell us That's a little right. bit more about this entire drama that ensued with this film? Well... So, of course, Travis Walton's uh, 1975 abduction was instantly huge when it was reported. And it remains, I, I, I guess, along with Betty and Bonnie Hill, the, the most famous abduction account on, on record. And very unusual as well for what he reported, because he was really one of the first people to report these these now iconic kind of archetypal alien greys alongside these less frequently reported Nordic human looking alien beings. And, uh, you know, so this was, this was kind of quite confusing um, to, to, to UFO researchers and, and remains so, I suppose. But this was a film that captured the national media's attention and international media as well at the time. And it, you know, it, it kind of ruined the lives of, of everyone who was involved in it um it had huge psychological impact on everyone as these abduction experiences often do but it wasn't until several years later that hollywood tried to to do anything with this story and i know that travis had been approached a couple of times by various people in in the industry seeking to adapt his story for the big screen um he'd never got a good feeling from those people uh, and what they wanted to do with it Tracy Torme was a young writer at the time who was working um, on the Star Trek The Next Generation TV show, and he was the son of Mel Torme, the famous um, jazz singer, and um, and uh, he was he and and Tracy had become very good friends with Gene Roddenberry um, on Star Trek, and and was very interested in UFOs as as a factual phenomenon, and he had in nineteen. 19- 91 or 2 basically finished work on his miniseries Intruders which was uh, again one of Hollywood's first serious explorations of the abduction phenomenon as reported by experiences uh, and and, and Torme was just fascinated by this stuff and he wanted to make a movie like a, an actual theatrical release exploring a compelling case and so he went through the books and he he went back to Travis Walton's case and he said you know this he said to himself this is this is fantastic and but I got to find out if it's true like I got to find out if I believe Travis Walton do I believe his story and the only way I can know that is if I go and meet him so he he rang up Travis Walton he managed to get his phone number um and the day that he called Travis out of the blue was literally the day that Travis Walton had taken his number his phone number out of the ex directory he <laughs> for the past decade had been publicly unreachable and then the very day that he puts it back <laughs> into the public yeah he gets his, he gets the phone call from Tracy Torme saying hey I want to make a movie <laughs> and so Travis says you know I, you know I got I got to be honest I'm skeptical of of Hollywood Hollywood folks and and uh very suspicious and uh, Tracy Torme said look let me come out and meet you and we'll spend some time together and then that's what they did and and then he went out there a number of times to Phoenix uh to excuse me to Snowflake Arizona and and they spent time together over the next what it would turn out to be several years and from the time of their first meeting to the time that the movie actually got released was six and a half years and that was because they had an uphill um struggle 
with the with the studios and with the with the bosses because at the time in the early 1990s abduction was was a really hard sell it hadn't really broken through into the popular consciousness out of the subculture of ufology um it was something that was being explored within 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 ufo research but it hadn't really made an impact outside of that because hollywood likes spectacle hollywood likes you know kind of clear-cut resolutions and anyone who knows anything about the abduction phenomenon knows that it doesn't always play like that mm-hmm. and in fact i don't think i've ever met an experiencer who's who's had a resolution to their experiences and um so you know these things are ongoing and they kind of shatter who you are and you just spend the rest of your life picking up the pieces in one in one way or another and that's not that doesn't make for a very good ending and so that was something that hollywood always had a problem with when it came to these abduction accounts but also again there's no there's no explosions there's no invasions it's just some kind of a weird phenomenon that kind of infiltrates your life and maybe takes you somewhere physically or psychically and does things that we we don't really understand their agendas or why they're doing things it's just so it, it didn't really play well with hollywood and um so as I say, it was a hard sell, and uh, eventually they they agreed on a script, and and Tracy Tormey managed to get a script through to Paramount. Paramount released the film, or about to release the film, when one of the bigwigs at Paramount just by chance happened to see one night whilst watching the television. He happened to see Tracy Tormey's um, aforementioned Intruders miniseries mm-hmm. on on TV, and and what he saw was these big eyed gray aliens performing experiments on you know on someone in a spaceship and those same scenes or similar scenes appear of course in fire in fire in the sky uh, the movie that he was about to release and the producer again this is these are the kind of the first images that he'd seen really um in pop culture of 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 abduction iconography and so he thought oh my god this has been done before Uh, and so like i can't release a movie that's 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 not new you know this is this is this is old news it's been done before and it's been done like a year ago so i don't want to release a major paramount movie that's that's not fresh and so producer rang torme very panicked and said you know you you've got a you've got to rewrite the abduction scene you've got to rewrite the the experimentation sequence because originally what torme had written was exactly what what travis walton reported which was which was not the horror scene that you see in the movie. It was certainly he was terrified and confused, um, and he he claimed to have encountered these grey type beings with the big eyes, and then but that encounter lasted a very short amount of time, and then he spent more time with these apparently human looking beings, and was taken into a big spaceport, and you know it was this it was more like Star Trek, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was originally what was written in the script. But the executives at Paramount said, "Look, you've got to you've got to get rid of all of that because it's too close to to what we saw, or at least we don't want these sterile scenes of, of experimentation. You know, we want something. We want you to reinterpret it, basically." So, Torme was 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 really annoyed about this and was kind of heartbroken to have to report it to Travis and say we've got to change it. Travis really didn't have much choice in the matter. Um, he he agreed to it reluctantly and actually helped Travis. Excuse me. Actually, helped Torme shape that sequence. And what they did was they tried to capture what what Travis reported in essence. Um, you know, so so Travis reported feeling uh, feeling like he was suffocating and that the air was thick and heavy and hard to breathe. And so they they took dramatic license with that. And rather than just showing that for what it was, they decided to have a 
you know, these goblin-like aliens put a horrible skin-like membrane over his mouth and literally suffocate him. So they took art- extreme artistic license and then they created this really graphic horror scene. And that that scene is so powerful, that sequence is so powerful, that the rest of the film is, is almost forgettable by comparison. And, and the, the only thing that you take away with you is that, is that horrific sequence. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a powerful film. It could have been better, but it's, it's, I have to say, it's probably still one of the best abduction movies that, that, that have been made. But yeah, but so that's, that's an example. There was, there was no conspiracy there. People, a lot of people were speculating for years that, you know, that that was the government trying to, you know, um, to create fear around the phenomenon and that they deliberately changed the scene from what Travis had reported because it was, it was some kind of a conspiracy, but it wasn't, that was just, it was just, you know, an artistic, an artistic issue. Um, and it was, it was, uh, it, it was, it was the fears of the executives. Absolutely. And I mean, when you have Torme himself bringing this news to Travis that it had to be changed, I mean, that right there shows the compassion of the writer who actually cares about the authenticity Mm. to have Travis's say in reworking the scene and finding, like you said, the essence of it. Um, Yeah, I mean, and he I mean, Tracy Torme, you know, he's he's really passionate about he's, you know, to this day, very, very interested in in the subject and, and remains uh, active uh, in it and um, still making films on the issue actually and um, he uh, you know this 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 film was as I say it was a passion project for him it took six and a half years to, to get it to screen uh, and he was thinking about you know and he'd been trying to get an abduction movie on screen since the early 1980s when he was working with Bud Hopkins. I'm excited about what he's working on now with James Fox and hopefully we'll see that doc- documentary 701 soon again mm. it all comes down to money but <laughs> mm, yeah yeah you know uh robbie a year later after fire in the sky um came 1994's roswell film roswell new mexico in 1947 this local rancher just brought in a whole lot of i don't know what you call it but he claims it all came down at his place and the sheriff thinks it might be something you guys sent up our government encountered something something you know top secret beyond our capacity to understand couldn't have been anything of ours i mean how in the hell was that thing held together look at this a power so terrifying it's as light as a feather i mean what the hell are we dealing with here is it friendly is it hostile a secret so dangerous from now on you're not to talk to anyone about this that includes your family that rancher was threatened, the sheriff was threatened, they threatened me. What the hell is this? It could forever change the world as we know it. What if people think that we are not in control of the skies? They'd be right. Written by Paul Davids, uh, directed mm-hmm. by Jeremy Kagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film had a long and sordid history before it was completed. Uh, would you care to sort of run us through that history of just exactly how the film was made and what prompted david's to pen the story for it at all uh, well you know this this was the as you say it's 1994 tv movie and it was really the first in-depth hollywood treatment of the roswell incident and this was as you say it was written and produced by paul david's and david's goal you know in, in in making this movie was not just to entertain but to educate he really felt that this film could bring a certain truth to 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 the wider public um it could it could bring to the attention this at the time little known ufo case people certainly outside of the ufo field 
had really never heard of the Roswell incident at mm-hmm. this at this point. It, you'd had references to it in in the X Files um, the year prior, but it, it had really yet to break big in, in pop culture. And, and to be honest, you know, it, it hadn't been the subject of, of of a great deal of discussion in the UFO community. So this film this film really put it on the map. So it, it's also noteworthy, I would say, this film because it was one of the first movies to feature a direct reference to Area Fifty One. Again, Area Fifty One does show up fleetingly in in the, in the X files um but this 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 is a movie that towards the end they they make reference to area 51 and there's this dramatic recreation of of a saucer park to area 51 and it's images like that that really kind of embedded themselves uh into the conspiracy community and then and then in turn into pop culture uh this this movie had a huge huge impact although it was a tv movie it was hugely successful for hbo it was nominated for the golden globe for the best picture of that year uh best tv movie of that year and it was it it had it played really really well with audiences It, it hugely increased the subscriber base for hbo and it was seen by millions and millions of people so i mean and i actually asked um, Paul Davids, if he, if he thought that the word Roswell, you know, would be so culturally resonant, had he not so memorably, uh, memorably contextualized it in his um, in his movie, and he said, you know, not as much. Basically, he, said he he thinks that although the X Files had an impact, which certainly it did, basically Roswell, his movie was 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 a huge part in in popularizing the Roswell mythology, shall we say? And um, it, it's a film that basically tells the story of, of Jesse Marcel and uh, Major Jesse Marcel who was one of the uh, original Roswell military witnesses shall we say not to a crash but to a to a, a crash site and mm-hmm. and to to materials and I mean everyone in every, almost everyone listening would probably have some idea of what Roswell represents but this was this was a hugely significant film uh, and actually again it took quite a while to, to come to fruition because um, you know because Ros- uh, Paul David had trouble selling it to, to various networks for the same reasons, really, that, that Torme had, had had trouble. Uh, you know, again, this was the early 1990s. UFOs hadn't, you know, like the post-1994, or post-1993, shall we say, between 1993 and, like, 1999, that was the era of the UFO in Hollywood. That was when we had Independence Day, Men in Black. You know, you had the X-Files that ran throughout the decade. You had Dark Skies uh, and numerous other... Uh, alien movies like The Arrival with Charlie Sheen and all sorts of films that tapped really into this emerging subculture and, and, and the increasingly paranoid mindset within this subculture. This, this idea of a government UFO conspiracy and this this was something that finally Hollywood recognised was, was something that could sell tickets and they had this really rich 70-year-old subculture to exploit and that's what they did. And, uh, and you know, I've always found it odd that filmmakers such as Paul Davids and, and, and others, you know, uh, Tracy Torme, and, and, and I interviewed a, a filmmaker called Andy Fickman, who directed the 2009 movie Race to Witch Mountain, which is also about UFOs. He made mm-hmm. that for, Di- for Disney. You know, a lot of these filmmakers, they, they tell me that, that they are genuinely passionate about the subject, about UFOs as a factual reality, and they want to use their medium to educate the public about this phenomenon. But they don't seem to understand the nature of the medium that they wield. They don't understand the impact that it has because it doesn't educate so much as it skews our perceptions, especially when, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're dealing with, if, you're, if the subject matter of your film is, is fundamentally true and then you, you're taking that fundamental truth and you're distorting it through the science fiction genre and presenting it as big screen entertainment, it becomes fictionalized uh, and we don't receive it as audiences munching on our popcorn as a documentary 
as a representation of fact. We, we interpret it as fantasy. And so I would argue that these filmmakers, yes, they're raising awareness of, of <laughs> or rather they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're embedding UFOs and aliens further into our collective consciousness, but they're, they're, they're not factualizing these, these phenomena. They're fictionalizing them. And so I would say that they're doing a disservice to, to, to the field. Um, but, you know, they're not doing it consciously. They're, they're doing that. That's their medium. And, and that's what they love to do, and that's what they—that's the thing that they know how to do. They're writers, they write. They, they're directors, they direct, and they make these films. But I don't think they fully appreciate the the complex impact that these products have. Robbie, I want to move to small screen, and we cannot go any further without talking about perhaps the most popular science fiction slash, I guess, procedural show ever to air, and that's The X-Files. I remember interviewing Dean Haglund, who played one of the lone gunmen a while back, Mm. and he told me that besides having countless references to UFO groups, government projects, and even actual cases, government agents were and FBI as well, were sometimes brought in to oversee episodes and or give opinions on the authenticity of certain things. Uh, In your research, did you ever come across any connections to the government in this show with Chris Carter? Well, I mean, in terms of um, government connections, I mean, the the first thing that springs immediately to mind, which I I mentioned in the book, is, um, and again, this this relates to what I just mentioned before about uh, a long-standing effort to disinform and deceive yes. um and which dates back to the at least the early 1980s and specifically to a man called richard doty who was an air force intelligence uh, officer oh yeah let's take one step at a time you're looking at richard doty the professional disinformer trained to lie i'm richard doty There's probably about 80% of false information being presented, about 20% of factual information. Uh, Unfortunately, the UFO community doesn't know which is which. And that's your job to keep it that way? That was my job before. I'm a private citizen now, but back in the early 80s, it was my job to confuse the UFO community. Doty was, you know, was at the forefront. He wasn't the guy who crafted it, but he was he was at the forefront of this uh, very ambitious and hugely successful disinformation psychological warfare campaign that was waged through the UFO community, not necessarily on it, but through it. And it was exploiting belief in, in, in UFOs and sought to exploit what was rapidly emerging as a, as a, as a New Age religion. And Richard Doty... And this is very, very well documented now. Again, this is, this is way too complex to go into in, in, in the time that we have here. Okay. Um, and it's been very well documented elsewhere, as I say. But, and I would highly recommend that people watch the film uh, Mirage Men and read the book Mirage Men as well, which goes into this. And I, again, devote considerable time to it in, in my own book. Richard Doty was, was a, an ace disinformation agent, basically. And um, it, very interestingly, Doty claimed to have been an advisor and been there on set during the X-Files um, at various points during, during different seasons and claims to have actually co-written uh, one, at least one episode, uh, again, relating to aliens and UFOs and, um, uh, and claims to have actually been in another episode as an extra. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and was close with, with, um, with Chris Carter. That in itself raises a lot of questions. The X-Files overarching narrative that ran for nine seasons of course was i mean the impact of that series cannot be understated it 
it continues to be felt today. I mean, it's a, first of all, it's an absolutely amazing series. It's one of the best, t- in my opinion, one of the best TV shows ever made on in any genre. Um, it had its up, it had its ups and downs, but overall, it maintained a very high quality, a very high standard of writing, uh, and it was it was a very very impressive piece of work, uh, and it it was very clever. You know, so Chris Carter, the creator, he and his researchers. They really did their work. They, you know, they weren't just kind of casually reading magazine articles about flying saucers here and there. You know, they they really did their research. They read a lot of material on this. They interviewed people. They spent time with experiences, with with UFO witnesses, uh, with researchers. Um, you know, uh, so so Chris Carter actually spent time with John Mack, uh, and with and with John with with John Mack, who was the uh, the Harvard psychiatrist who was kind of pirate pioneering in his abduction research in the nineties. Uh, and they they spent time with you know they, the the show creators spent time with with John Mack and with his experiences. So, so they really absorbed all of this information, and then they incorporated it often in quite a, a, um, a respectful and, and accurate way uh, into their into their series. And again, the result was that these previously fringe subcultural ideas started to filter in a very immediate way into the heart of pop culture through the biggest show on television at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and which remained very popular throughout its run. Um, so, so absolutely. It acted as a as a conduit for these ideas, whether or not that was a natural cultural process or something political and conspiratorial. There is no there's no clear answer on that when it comes to the X Files because actually Chris Carter is um, he 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 doesn't give a lot away. Um, <laughs> but what you have again, you know, a lot of people like in this in this community they like either or answers. You know, they they, they like distinctions to be made. And when it comes to UFOs and and why and how we've come to think of them through Hollywood, it, it seems to be a, a cultural process versus a conspiratorial one. And so, you know, people ask me, is it all a big Hollywood conspiracy, or is it just something that? that just has naturally evolved because filmmakers see dramatic potential in these reports and this subculture and they exploit it. Well, the answer is both. (laughs) It's primarily now a natural cultural process, but in its early years, it was very political because of the Robertson panel's recommendations to use mass media to, to basically, to basically um, manipulate massage people's perceptions of the phenomenon. And then those, recommendations kind of shifted or adapted over the years and and then various different agencies got involved the pentagon the cia um, even the fbi all had concerns about ufo representations over the years what what you've had is is from time to time from production to production over the decades you've had demonstrable cases uh, of government and military interference uh, and influence in ufo themed productions some of those are very very concrete but Overall, but simultaneously, what you have is is this natural cultural process emerging, where UFOs, whatever they might represent as a phenomenon, seem to be ontologically real on some level, and therefore never go away. People continue to experience them at a grassroots level. People continue to report them, and then as long as those reports continue to surface, they will continue to find their way to Hollywood creatives, who will continue to exploit them and popularize them, and simultaneously fictionalize them, (laughs) (laughs) and simultaneously actualize them, because that's the power of Hollywood as well. It simultaneously fictionalizes and actualizes whatever it depicts, because we we, although we, we receive Hollywood entertainment as a form of fantasy at the same time it does on a weird level actualize its subject matter it becomes somehow real you know in a way that's this is almost mystical and and so so again these are the questions that really 
that really drive me in my research on 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 UFOs in Hollywood. I don't see it as something that's just that's peripheral. You know, the, the Hollywood angle. I don't see UFO movies as peripheral to the phenomenon. And I believe that they are central to our understanding or our misunderstanding of the phenomenon. And let's not forget that the modern phenomenon of UFOs emerged in 1947, and Hollywood's first UFO movie was released just three years later. So the, two, the so the two have gone almost hand in hand throughout the you know for, for the past 70 years mm-hmm. and, and so separating the two really should be of, of, of great interest to anyone who's interested in the subject absolutely it's startling how closely they uh paralleled one another robbie uh, a lesser known show but extremely well made in my opinion uh was dark skies uh mm-hmm. made by our mutual friend bryce sable 1947 roswell new mexico an event takes place that will change history forever. They have come. An alien force of incomparable power with a deadly ultimatum. They just demanded our unconditional surrender. Now the battle has begun. We're about to bet the entire human race. And so has the cover-up. I am nothing but a figment of your imagination because this incident never happened. Could you tell us a bit about the plot of this show, its ties to the so-called Majestic 12, and some of the shady dealings that Bryce Zabel encountered while making this series? Yeah, so this is a, a show that was made in the mid-1990s, and it was created by, as you say, Bryce Zabel and uh, Brent Friedman, and it presented uh, an alternate history of 20th century America. Uh, it was, it, it, you know, it, it, its tagline was, history as we know it is a lie. And in this case, it was a lie built around this secret alien presence on Earth and that the U.S. government was secretly trying to uh, understand and control this, this alien threat. And there, there were some parallels with the X-Files, and, and, but it, it drew very, again, it drew very specifically from existing UFO literature and debate at the time. But then it furthered that as well, and it fleshed it out even more, and perhaps even you know um created new beliefs uh, as the x-files did <clears throat> um so again it begins with the roswell incident you've got all of the the key ufological ideas and uh, and landmarks area 51 all that kind of stuff and what they did was bryce and brent they pitched their show to networks in america in the form of a top secret briefing file they created this mock-up top secret file and it was modeled on the majestic 12 documents these so so-called authentic documents which have proven to be anything but containing information relating to the roswell incident and other crashes of ufos and aliens over the years and basically they presented this thick ring-bound file, which they referred to as their Dark Skies Bible, and they presented this to the network executives. And it contained all this UFO lore and a real uh, official history. And, and the plan was to have five series, you know, five shows, five um, seasons of the show, excuse me. <laughs> it's okay. And, it's an American term. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the file, it, was, it had on, front, on the front of it uh, a one-page letter written by their, the, the show's fictional hero, a, a character called John Lowengard. So they'd written it as John Lowengard, and it was addressed to Bryce and Brent. So they'd written this letter to themselves, essentially, from their character. And uh, the letter actually read, and I quote, Bryce and Brent, the truth must be told. 
You have been chosen as instruments to achieve this objective. The truth, however, must not be represented as truth. Too many people are needed in the struggle. Uh, too many people who are needed in the struggle will die. The cover of fiction must be used to present this truth. Those who fear the light will not want to bring attention to you by allowing your death. This is the only way. Do not be afraid. The fight for humanity depends on your courage. John Lowengard. Uh, so, so that was a, a really cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's a hell of a cover letter. <laughs> and then naturally they accept that, the, the, you know, the uh, NBC um, accepted the show and they got to work on it. And Bryce said, you know, literally everything that he'd read in UFO literature ended up in the series. And from Betty and Barney Hill to Majestic 12, Area 51, Roswell. It may have been that the inclusion of such intricate fact-based detail attracted real-world government UFO spooks. What happened was that during one of the sort of rap parties towards the end of uh, or, or sort of during the shoot basically they hadn't yet filmed most of the episodes i think they'd only just wrapped the first episode and they were having a an invitation only private party at bryce's house in los angeles and there's about 200 people cast and crew invited bear in mind that the rest of the show hadn't been filmed yet and this is way you know this is way in advance of anything being shown on television and each of the guests showed up each of the people who were invited had to wear a badge a, uh, a, a a majestic twelve mock up badge ID badge, uh, kind of in reference to Bob Lazar actually uh, his ID badge that was made famous after Area Fifty One, and that was how you knew you'd been invited because you wore one of these badges. Anyway, during the course of the evening, Bryce and Brent noticed some guy who didn't have a badge and who they didn't really recognize and who no one seemed to recognize. He was this youngish twenty something preppy looking guy, and he kind of made his way into the kitchen and approached Bryce and said, hey, you know, we've seen your show and uh, <laughs> we've seen your show and, and you get some stuff right, but you get a lot of stuff wrong and we'd like to help you with it. We'd like to help you get the details right. And Bryce and Brent were like, who the hell are you? <laughs> Sorry? And and he said, yeah, we've seen your show and blah, blah, blah. And, and they were like, Bryce was, was the host of the party. He had 200 guests to attend to and he was like, I really don't have much time for this at the moment. I've got to go and see to my guests. And, yeah. and they, they didn't really know what to make of him. And, and he contacted them after and he said, oh, he said he represents a, you know, a group of people who have access to this information, etc. And he, he, he phoned Brent, the, other, the co-creator of the show, at a later date and, and then basically set up a meeting with them. And they agreed to this meeting and then this meeting was held in Bryce and Brent's office in in hollywood and um the, the same guy showed up but this time he showed up with two other guys um uh, oh, an, another young guy and then an older guy and they said that they were from they, that they were with um naval intelligence and that they were navy seals in fact and bryce and brent said that well bryce told me that um that they really looked the part you know that that if they were to tell him that they were Navy SEALs, there's no reason he should doubt that they were Navy SEALs. They looked like they were Navy SEALs, mm -hmm. you know, and they spoke the language. They walked the walk, they talked the talk, and they seemed to have a very, very, very detailed narrative that they spun there in the office of aliens and UFOs and the government and, and how they would help, you know, Bryce and Brent on their show and uh, they would help them with the scripts and all this kind of stuff and they wanted to be involved um, and that they would need to be read into the program. They would need to be given access, like the, the Bryce and Brent would need to be given access to this information and the only way to do that would be to go and meet the big guy, 
presumably some admiral admiral um, on a ship, on a naval ship in the dock, <laughs> and they were going to set set up this meeting and stuff. And 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 at one point during the the meeting in the office, one of the guys takes out a a, a vial of um, gold liquid material and puts it on the desk, and he's yelling at Bryce and Brent, kind of like swearing, basically saying, "You guys, you think you're so smart with your Hollywood." scripts and but you don't know what you're dealing with this is real you know you don't even have this in your script you don't even know what this is and he puts his vial of gold on the table and uh, uh, you know what what is that meant to represent is that meant to be some kind of alien fuel or or is it some some alien element or i mean and um and so (laughs) bryce and brent are really freaked out by all of this and at the end of the meeting anyway they they say look we can set up a meeting with the big guy uh, and we'll we'll have to get back to you with the details of that Mm -hmm. and then when they finally get back to them they say, "Okay, next time we meet, we have to meet. We have to meet, <laughs> have to meet at, midni- yeah. at, mid- <laughs> at, mid- at midnight in some cemetery." <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Very proper X Files stuff. Yeah. And, and at that point, Bryce said, "Look, I'm out. This is. <laughs> it's just I've got children, and I've got a show to run." I got a family and I don't want any part of this. And that was it. He stepped away from it. And I think the guys, they phoned Brent once more, but that was the last they'd heard of it. But, you know, Bryce kind of, in interviews, he, he kind of um, dismisses it all, really. And kind of like he tells it how I've just told it, essentially. I've probably got a few details wrong, but he tells it essentially as I've told it in the same tone. But he's kind of like, oh, well, I don't really know what to make of it. And But when you ask him, he says, you know, I, I think that they were real but he doesn't necessarily you know he thinks that they were actually like you know i i have very little doubt that they were probably with if not naval intelligence then with some three-letter agency and that they were there not that and you know i don't believe that the vial of gold they put on the table was was anything (laughs) extraterrestrial i believe that that whole operation was to screw with their minds and was to potentially yes infiltrate their show so that they could sow very specific ideas about a subject that they've been deeply concerned about for many decades, but that they can sow the narrative that suits them. Because, you, you know, what, what the powers that be recognized long ago was that you cannot, contrary to Robertson Panel's desires, you cannot completely debunk and demystify a phenomenon that continues to manifest itself spectacularly around the world. If the phenomenon exists, then that's it. People will continue to experience it. So you can't debunk it and make people believe that it doesn't exist. But what you can do is you can attempt to, to shape and manage how people perceive the phenomenon. Uh, and that has been the goal of, of, of industry infiltration for, for so many decades. Right. It's, not, it's not to debunk and demystify anymore as it was in the early years. It's to shape an already existing belief system and to exploit it for various reasons, for all sorts of different reasons. But one of them is psychological warfare against other nations. And this is, again, something that I look into in the book and which has been documented and, and explored by others. So, yeah, I, 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 and there's a, there's a lot to go into on that front. And again, it's another, another half an hour's discussion, and I don't want to risk – if, if, if I've not already sent people to sleep, I'd probably refrain from that. <laughs> it's extremely intriguing. I mean, and that you bring up such a good point, Robbie. I mean, who knows what the government actually knows about the phenomenon. But like you said, while they may not be able to control the phenomenon, they can control the information that is told to the public. So mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful point. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but actually, the, the, you know, the narrative that has emerged very consistently, especially in films that have been supported or related, supported by or related to 
official power structures, the military, the CIA. The narrative that, that has emerged since the early 1980s is of a American military and intelligence apparatus that is deeply knowledgeable about UFOs and aliens to the extent even that they have working mutual treaties with the alien intelligences have reverse engineered their technology for weapons applications and if you look at the narratives of more recent films they've actually reverse engineered that technology for peaceful purposes and for peacekeeping purposes and for national security reasons and are using it successfully to combat enemy foreign powers and I'm, ta- I'm referring here to, to the Transformers films um, in particular, but in other films as well, and including the new Independence Day film, which wasn't, uh, which didn't have the direct involvement at a production level of of the military, but it was supported in its later stages in its marketing campaign very wholeheartedly by the military. And I and I would be very surprised, quite honestly, if uh, if there wasn't some covert influence on the, on the script there, because it just ties in so perfectly with with all of the other um, Department of Defense backed. UFO scripts that have been put out um, over the past decade or so. So what you have, I, I, very strangely, is is this... Well, it's actually not strange when you think about it, because who watches Hollywood movies? Well, everyone, right? Hollywood movies, even North Korea, like... Right? <laughs> Kim Jong-un watches Hollywood movies, right? Obviously, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what they, also, so what they also see in North Korea and in every other country? UFOs. And you know what every military sees? UFOs. And what every military on Earth has some knowledge of, some interest in, UFOs. And regardless of how deep their actual involvement is with the subject, every earthly military has some interest, historical or present, in UFOs. And some basic understanding of the fact that the phenomenon represents something unearthly. And therefore is of national security interest. And what these governments also recognise, without question, is that the United States government has a very deep historical involvement with the subject deeper than any other nation and the conclusions to be drawn from that especially with narratives like roswell uh, and 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 landmarks like area 51 and the stories that go along with those even though this even though they are you know not taken literally it's hard to to completely divorce those stories from from some basis in fact and so if you're a foreign government interested in ufos soviet union you know north korea wherever, you're going to have some meeting at some point or some people within your government are going to have a meeting and say, I wonder what, you know, what, what, do the, what does the US government actually have on this? You know, <laughs> right. What are they doing? We know what we're doing. We know what we've monitored. What have they got? Have they actually reverse engineered technology? And oh my God, if they have, what are the implications of that for warfare on us? And the United States government knows that these conversations are going on as well. And so for a long time, they've been seeking to exploit the, that, that interest and that knowledge uh, that unspoken knowledge. And so going back to the early 1980s, you, you, you had this effort to seed popular entertainment with a very particular narrative that portrays the US government as supremely powerful in possession of, of, uh, of earth-changing technologies, reverse-engineered alien technologies, and more, uh, and more than that, actually in league with the aliens themselves. And this stuff permeates the UFO literature as well to the extent that it's a belief system, whether or not it's true, whether or not it's true. Mm-hmm. And certainly we've been encouraged by official bodies to believe that it's true. That's un- that is without doubt. And you can trace the seeds of that disinformation campaign, that psychological warfare, warfare campaign, back to a very specific point in time. And I've done that and others have done it before me. So you really have to ask how much of what you believe, what you think you know, 
about secrecy and deep politics of UFOs, how much of what you believe has been constructed by the very people who, <laughs> you know, who who are uh, who you think have all the answers, yeah. but who actually, but who actually, and crucially, do not have all the answers because they ultimately, despite their billions of dollars spent covertly on this research over the years, they are humans like the rest of us, and they're extremely primitive. And yes, they have more advanced covert technologies, and they have the best minds in science, etc. But ultimately, they are dealing with a phenomenon that, that is so far beyond our comprehension that yes, they've drawn their own conclusions, they have their own version of the truth, but it is not the truth, it is their truth. And they do not understand what they're dealing with. And all they can do is seek to manage our perceptions of the same phenomenon that confounds them, in a way least incriminates them. It's a power play. You're, you're exactly right. And, Robbie, this, this sort of all ties into something I remember hearing you speak about at a lecture in Denmark. And this is about hyper-reality. Could mm-hmm. you sort of explain just exactly what this, what this is and how it relates to everything we've sort of spoken about today? Well, I mean, hyper-reality is something that we've been alluding to really throughout this, and it, it's, the, it's the inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. This is the, this is the popular definition of it. Um, you know, so it's the inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. So, uh, again, so, you know, the, the, the Titanic example would, yep. be, would be a good one. We, we recognize that Titanic is a film. But on some level, we, we really do find it very hard to distinguish between that fictional representation and the, and the historical event itself. Technologies of mass media have played a huge role in this hyperreal process, this, this constant blurring, an irreversible blurring of fact and fantasy in the popular consciousness on a whole range of topics and issues. Um, and, and so if, if, if a movie can blur the boundaries between historical fact and fantasy on a, on a historically accepted, massively famous event like the titanic and there are lots of other examples we can refer to in, in cinema history as well yeah. on, on historical events then what 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 effect does this hyper real process have on our perception of of something which is as i say rejected by consensus reality rejected by official culture ufos don't exist except for those people who witness them at an individual level and even then most of those experiences are you know they defy the senses in in, in many cases and, and often the experiencer in the moment or, or 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 after will question whether or not they've even seen what they've seen did i really see that how can i see that that that's not part of our reality did i really see that how can i have seen that like that that what i've just seen belongs on the cinema screen because that's where i've seen it previously but now it's here in front of me how can that be this is this is this is hyper reality things being that you you know ufo's are simultaneously real and unreal in the Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.